0: was only about 17 or 18 at the time and she pulled me into her and hugged me and she whispered into my ear, Stephen in all you do glorify God and glorify God in all you do and I have never forgotten those words.
1: I distinctly remember holding an eight
0: day old baby boy as he breathed his last breath and passing his little lifeless body to his mom and dad. And listening to them cry out in anguish, searching for answers. And there can be a certain smell when I go to the hospital to this day, and I instantly go back to that event. I remember, like it was yesterday, the complete opposite of that feeling the circumstances by which Brandon and Jordan and Abby were born, and how each of them were passed to me. And I remember how they said, It's a boy, and then it's a boy, and then. It's a girl. And I said, check again. (laughs) You know, I remember those events so distinctly. I remember being just a 10, 11-year-old boy. And my cousin Scott and I were out in Harbor Grace. And he thought he could get across the street, and he got hit by a car. And I remember distinctly that watching his body fly through the air and wondering, what has happened to Scott? And believe it or not, he got up and walked away from me. I remember a dear senior saint's words of wisdom to me as we worked alone on a work site. When he told me to learn all I could from people and whatever was bad, just leave that to the Lord. I remember the look as a 12-year-old grandson on the look of my grandfather's face. As I told him about Jesus, he who had been so hard and against Christ and the church. And I told him I didn't want him to die and not know Jesus and I remember looking into his massive face and that tear rolling down his cheek as he asked his grandson how to be right with God. These are the events that make, look up, make up my life. And they are just a few of hundreds of events that have shaped me, that stay have stuck with me. And some of them make me smile and some make me cry. Some make me stop and ponder life. But they have all, all of them have this in common. I tell the story of them over and over again. I just do. Because they've affected my life. And this is true and very important for the passage that Daniel just read to you. In John chapter 7, 53 to chapter 8, verse 11. In fact, if many of you would take the time right now. If you have your Bible. Look at it. Look at it right now where this passage is. And maybe in your Bible the font is a little smaller. Maybe you'll notice that there's some sort of marking around it that tells you there's something different about that passage. A little note that says there's a footnote to it. And let me say from the outset, the reason for that, I would say in just about every version of the Bible, if you have one here, this will tell you something that marks this passage apart because there is some debate as to whether this particular passage was a part of John's original gospel. In fact, most commentators and most textual critics and most conservative Christians believe that this was likely la- added later by a scribe who copied it out. And there are internal reasons and external reasons for that. And plug for Derek Butler's Sunday school class. If you want to learn all about that, go to Sunday school in the coming weeks and he'll dig into that for you. But I want you to understand here that I believe... This passage fits beautifully here in John. And I believe that this is a true story of Jesus. I know this gospel illustration in no way contradicts scripture. It doesn't take away from it or change it in any way. In fact, quite the opposite is true. This is my second favorite passage of scripture to read and to preach. In fact... This passage drives home the point we've all been looking at thus far in John. If you've been here at our church, it firmly upholds Jesus' divinity and his authority and yet his mercy and forgiveness and gospel. This story holds true to John's purpose statement that I've read for you week after week. At the end of John, he tells you why he wrote his gospel. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. I believe John seven fifty three to eight eleven gives us yet another consistent insight as well to the determination of religion to not only shut up Jesus, but to arrest him or discredit him, in this passage, entrap him, and ultimately in the passion destroy him, or at least. Think they did. But just like all the events that I told you about from my life, that dear lady Ina Pike who died out in Harbor Grace, that dear senior Saint Ken Anderson, who imparted words of wisdom to me at a church work site. For most of you, they're faceless and nameless, but they're true. And this passage before us is a true story, a real event. It was part of what I believe was the oral tradition of Jesus' life. Part of what John references maybe at the end of the Gospel of John when he says these words in John 21. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did which were if every one of them to be written. I suppose John says that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so as we begin our journey through this passage, let me put this whole sermon in a sentence. And those of you that are tired can then go to sleep. And the rest of you, I will seek to keep awake for the next 30 minutes or so. Here's the whole sermon in a sentence. You and I, you and I will never entrap or ensnare Jesus with our questions or hypothetical situations. Jesus, and only Jesus, is God. He's the true authority over life, and the only one without sin, which is why he qualifies to tell us about ourselves, and listen, and to rescue us from ourselves. That's in about a sentence and a half, or a real run-on sentence for some of you teachers and your grammar, is what this whole passage is about. By way of just setting up, John the Apostle has been describing for us what Jesus has been saying all the way back in John 5, 1, all the way to 8, 11. And that is, in three words, I am God. Jesus has been saying this over and over again. He's saying, I have authority. I have authority over creation. And I have authority over humanity. And I have authority over the law. And up to this point, John, Jesus has been argued with and argued over. He's been challenged and questioned. He's had multiple demands put upon him, both from his stepbrothers at the beginning of John chapter 7 and the public to not only explain himself, but often to show more signs to prove himself. That pastor in California, John MacArthur, summarizes so well this passage. He says, this passage is not primarily the story of an adulteress or of the hypocritical religious leaders who cynically used her to attack Jesus. The central figure of this gripping drama of immorality and hypocrisy and forgiveness, as in all of John's gospel, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the main figure here. And so this morning, just for a few minutes, I want us to look at the players of this scene. And I broke it down into four S's for you. All right. I worked hard at this. I really worked hard at my alliteration. So you guys can keep this. All right? We're going to see the seekers, then the skeptics, then the sinner, and then the Savior. And so first, let's look at the seekers. Because no matter what you think of John's gospel or this passage, the one thing that is undeniable is wherever Jesus went, he drew a crowd. Wherever he went, he drew a crowd. And so first we see the seekers. Look at it in John 7:53 to 8, 1. Our story begins by giving us the background of who would make up the audience to this situation. Now again, because there's controversy about this passage, some people believe that this story fits right here in John, that it's chronologically here, and some people think maybe it shouldn't be, but it makes no difference. If this is where it should be, Jesus is six months from the cross. It's the end of the Feast of Booths. There's a large crowd in Jerusalem. And not only is there this massive crowd already there, Jesus drew even more of a crowd to himself. And if this story is connected with the Passion Week, as some contest, then Jesus is actually only a few days from the cross. It's the Passover feast. And so, religiously and curiosity have gathered a massive crowd. But I want you to notice how our passage says it. They went to their own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now that's telling us where maybe the scribes and the Pharisees go and where Jesus goes. Early in the morning, early in the morning, he came to the temple. And all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. I love this. That's why I want to, one of my favorite passages of the Bible. Because the Pharisees have gone home. If you look back it's just at the end of chapter 7, they have failed in their attempts to arrest Jesus. They've been challenged by Nicodemus, one of their own. Maybe the crowds have gone back to their booths or they're starting to tear down. Maybe they've gone back to their family homes and friends. Maybe some of them are in hostels or even hotels, but not Jesus. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. We're not told if he went to a home. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I think he likely went up into the Mount of Olives like many times in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he went up there alone and he prayed all night long. For you and for me. He prayed for us. And he had done it before. And remember when Jesus was asked once before about where he goes. And he says the foxes have holes and the birds have nests. But the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And so here was Jesus up on the Mount of Olives. But early in the morning he comes back. And he's been rejuvenated in some way. And he sits down and he teaches the people. Because he was about his father's business. He was doing that back when he was 12 years old. And he's still doing it now at 33. 33. But watch as he comes that next day, comes back to the temple. Now don't miss this. This is where the opposition is. This is where the attacks have been happening. This is where the insults have been hurled. This is where the danger of arrest is. There's the press of the crowd, the risk of a mob mentality. But John tells us that Jesus, the one who speaks with authority, the one whom the temple police had just said, no one ever spoke like this. I love this. He sits down and he teaches the people. Well, friends and family here in September, I want you to know Jesus is gentle and approachable. He's meek and he's mild. But he's truthful. And he's honest. He's authoritative. And he's strong. And whether it's Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, all four of those gospel writers tell us that Jesus drew crowds. Have you ever thought about it? Moms brought their kids to him in Matthew, and he blessed them. The sick waited in line to see him. Friends cut open rooftops and lowered down their friends who were paralyzed so Jesus could see them. One dear lady, who was overwhelmed by the crowd and too embarrassed to speak with him, just clung to the hem of his garment. Zacchaeus, that wee little man, climbed a tree just so we could see him. A blind man on the road to Artemis yelled out for him. Whether it was tens of people or hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands, they all followed him. And on that day in the temple, they gathered and they were a series of seekers and questioners. Maybe they doubted and they wondered.
1: They were the searchers. But my, how the scene would change.
0: I can bet you that the seekers never thought that they would go into the temple, see what they were about to see unfold before them. Well, they might have anticipated an argument, maybe even a challenge or even a threat, but today entrapment was on the agenda. And if you'll notice what these religious leaders had just said about the common man, look back in chapter 7, 45 down to 48. They said that the people of Israel were just common. They were accursed. They had a very low view of them. And so this attempted entrapment would come at the public humiliation of a nameless and faceless woman. And so we move from the seekers and now we move to the skeptics. This is one of the markers in our story which breaks kind of from the norm of John's gospel because it's described as scribes and Pharisees. You'll never find that term anywhere else in John's gospel. That's a term usually reserved for Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Scribes were lawyers. They were textual critics. They they were the ones that knew it. They were the commentators. They were the experts in the law. And the Pharisees were the experts at obeying it, or at least making you think they obeyed it. And the story fits so beautifully here with the flow and the setup that John's been using thus far. They've just been dealt, dealt this serious blow to their authority, and they've been challenging Jesus' authority, and it never seems to go that they get... They just get thwarted every time. Their own armed guard, armed guard wouldn't and couldn't arrest Jesus. Nicodemus was daring enough to challenge them about how they actually applied the law. And so, according to verse 53, they go home for the night. Now, I don't know about you, but my vivid imagination tries to imagine what they did. Maybe they got together that evening and they had coffee and they thought, this is not working, we've got to hatch a better plan. And someone said, I know, let's trap him. You know what? If we, if we can't beat him ourselves, then let's make him, make him beat himself. And so they go and they do it. Look at the words of our passage in chapter 8, verse 2. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman, they don't even name her, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Do you you feel their disdain? They don't care about this woman. So, what do you say? This was the trap, and John tells us they said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. I want you to see what they're doing. You see, we're told why they brought the woman. They wanted to test Jesus, they're not interested in keeping the law. They're not there because they feel somebody has infringed on the law or justice needs to be prevailed. They set a trap for Jesus. They want to set Jesus against Moses and the law. And see the dilemma. You see, if Jesus says, go light on the woman, go light on her, then they can say, see, he's anti-Moses and he's anti-law. And imagine saying that in the temple. Moses was the, the hero of the Jews. And that's why they use these words, Moses commanded us. Or Jesus could say, then stone her. Yes, let's keep the law. And now to all that crowd that's gathered, he's just another cold-hearted dictator. He's actually not a friend of the people. And so if he says, keep the law and stone her, which by the way, was never done. This was never done. Oh, it was in the law, but it was never done in practice. Then Jesus pitched his gospel against the law. As entrapment goes, this was brilliant. And I can imagine some of them were rubbing their hands together with great delight. They finally thought they had them. But I want you to see this woman is not on trial. Dare I say this to you? Listen, adultery is more a sin of weakness than of malice. Please never forget that the real sin on display here is actually pure hatred. These men were more willing to destroy and risk killing a woman. All for the cause of just bringing down Jesus. Why? Because his message, his gospel of grace, and mercy, of freedom, of repentance. Yes, confession, of course. But a transformed life? Absolutely. But this message was an affront to those men. And they had given their lives to build up something and that was precious to them. And so the woman's not on trial. Jesus is. And we're told that this woman was caught in adultery. If you understand the language, it means caught in the very act. And you'll see the disdain because they say, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now they make it plural. They they really don't even think this woman's human. She is simply a pawn, an ends, a means to an end. Their distance and lack of caring is so evident. They're the skeptics. They don't care about this woman. They don't care about the crowd. (coughs) They only care about being right. About beating Jesus. They care about their power and their position. And they'll do anything to have it. But you know what? If you read between the lines and you do a bit of study on this and you actually call their bluff, you'll notice they weren't actually completely forthright or truthful ...about the law of Moses. You see, the law they refer to... ...can be found in both Leviticus 20... ...and Deuteronomy 22. In Leviticus 20, verse 10, it says... ...if a man commits adultery... ...with the wife of his neighbor... ...both the adulterer... ...and the adulteress... ...shall surely be put to death. Uh, two people. <laughs> Notice, secondly... ...in Deuteronomy 22... ...if a man is found lying... ...with the wife of another man... Both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge evil from Israel. But that's not the rest of the story. If you keep reading in Deuteronomy in verses 23 and 24, the stoning was for the guilt of the pair. And it was only demanded when the woman was actually a virgin who was pledged to be married. So they're actually overstating what the law says. Because their whole purpose is to trap Jesus. And let me ask you, where's the guy in all of this? They dragged this woman and they say here, we've caught her in the act. And again, if you understand the Greek language, it says they caught her in the very act. In other words, they caught her doing this. This wasn't after the fact. You see, it's not enough to find them in an inappropriate or compromising situation. In the first century, one Jewish rabbi would put it like this. The actual physical movements of the couple must have been capable of no other explanation. So these people are saying, not only do we know she committed adultery, we've even got people who witnessed it. Do you smell the setup? My conspiracy mind wonders, what lengths did they go? Did they go to this woman and promise her something? she down on her luck or needed money and they said we need you to do this for us and you'll get paid handsomely maybe she had no idea what the outcome was did they actually pick one of their own a scribe or a Pharisee to woo this woman into adultery but he wasn't there understand the darkness of this I love their confidence so what do you say Jesus who they were sure they had him See, the commotion had been made in the temple area. The women is thrown there before him. The crowd is silent, maybe watching, leaning in. The weird silence must have been deafening. But before we move to Jesus, look and consider the sinner. See, there's the seekers and then there's the skeptics. But notice this lady. This nameless, faceless woman. I believe is the most unfortunate in our story. And yet, in keeping with John, you'll notice she's deliberately nameless and faceless because we're meant to consider her life and her circumstances, not who she is personally. We're trying to do that because we're trying to put ourselves there. But try to imagine just for a minute this morning the hurt she must have been felt. What would it have been like? The fear and the embarrassment, the shame. They took her and they threw her. If it was in the very act that they ever let her cover herself was she partially nude and naked, maybe with nothing more than a sheet to try and keep herself covered? Did they drag her and throw her before Jesus? And so she's dusty and and, 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 and violated and she's scared. And maybe she's looking around and there are familiar faces in this crowd. Maybe her mother or father are there or siblings or cousins Maybe there's an aunt or an uncle or a neighbor and now she's been outed before everybody and maybe there are tears streaming down her face and she quivers and her lip shakes and because of all the dust she's been just lobbed out there, is nothing more than meat before an angry crowd and maybe there's tear stains and little,
1: little traces of water go down her cheeks. And she's she was tricked into this. All for the evil purposes of some men who needed to be right. They treated the law and this woman as nothing more than a weapon. I don't know but you but my heart breaks at the callousness of religion gone bad.
0: Is it any wonder that so many women don't feel safe in church when so often they are degraded and objectified and made to feel less than? Oh, I want you to see this. They wanted Jesus either to enforce a law they themselves didn't do or contradict the letter of the law so they could simply say, aha. And do you realize the risk? They were willing to let him say, stone her and watch her die.
1: I wonder at what moment she figured out, this is bad. I could die today. Surely she thought, my life will never be
0: the same. You know what that's like in our viral video social media world moment where you do a little Instagram photo. Oh, for you young student girls and young ladies in high school, don't get trapped into taking that picture and posting it. Before you know it, in an instant, your life's never the same.
1: This woman probably felt like, I'm never getting through this. If I survive, how do I go home? If I survive, where do I turn?
0: But before we move on, let me remind us, this is how religion uses people. But it is also how sin and Satan use us. Oh, church, I want you to see that the world will lie to you. All those commercials lie, sin lies, Satan lies. It always promises what it never pays. And that's why Romans says that the wages of sin is always and only shame and pain and eventually death. You and I are all too familiar with times when we gave in to our impulses and we thought just this once only to discover it didn't pay off. I'm not happy. It took more from me. Sin uses us. It abuses us. It takes from us. And it hurts us. Judas
1: found this out when for the price of a slave he sold out Jesus. was too afraid and ashamed and took his own life. Samson found this out.
0: When he indulged his impulses, Solomon found it out. So did Matthew, the tax collector, and Zacchaeus. But as we're about to see, Jesus actually is the friend of sinners. And so ladies and gentlemen, allow me to introduce to you the Savior, The searchers and there's the skeptics and there's the sinner. See, Jesus is amazingly silent in this passage. Well, as it relates to words, you see, in this passage, his action speaks volume. And maybe even more controversial than this passage itself is what's in this, because twice in our passage it says that Jesus stooped down and wrote. And the first time he wrote in the ground and then he stooped down again and began to write. And I will tell you that volumes and volumes and volumes of paper and oodles and oodles of ink have been used up as men and women have tried to figure out what did Jesus write. People wonder if it's a verse out of Jeremiah, did he name the sins of all those men, or did he start to name all of their uh, mistresses, or what, and I'm telling you, it's fascinating, great uh, Indiana Jones conspiracy theory stuff, but I want to tell you, it's not what he wrote, it's what he did. Think this with me, because Jesus has been challenged over and over in John as if he's God, and they come to him and they say, Moses commanded us, and here's the law. And did you notice that the only time in John, outside of the next chapter in chapter 9, when he heals a blind man born blind, Jesus stoops down and with his finger writes in the earth. Do you know who else came down and met a man and with his finger wrote the law of God? God in Exodus. So here, don't get worried about what he wrote, but that he did this. He takes the posture of God. He kneels down and with his finger, he writes in the earth and the action of God himself. And you'll notice these men will respond after he commands actions. Because then they they keep asking him, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And notice what he does. He gets up and look at our passage and he says to them, let him who was without sin among you Be the first to throw a stone at her. (laughs) He took this posture of God, and they keep bugging him, and he stands up and he says, Okay, keepers of the law, you want a verdict? You want a pronouncement? Then here it is. You ready? Who here is worthy to judge? Who here has authority to judge? In this statement in our passage, it's not a request. He's not saying, who amongst you? He's, he's actually making a command. It's a forceful command. You who are without sin. Literally, the one who is without sin, who is perfect and perfectly qualified to pronounce judgment.
1: And then he kneels down and starts to write again in the posture of God. See, this is not Jesus giving the woman a pass. We'll see that in a moment. This is Jesus showing us
0: that only he can deal with sin authoritatively and yet with mercy and grace. Only he can satisfy the holiness of God and yet give us a new heart and life and relationship with a holy God. And watch what happens. As the old radio program says, now you have the rest of the story. I love it. He bends down that second time and it says, then they started leaving from the oldest To the youngest, I think they realized, oh snap, we've lost. And if we stick around, he's going to actually do a God thing and we don't want to be around for that. And as all this crowd is silently gobsmacked watching this and this woman who is terrified and ashamed and embarrassed, God looks at them, and I love it, defeat and conviction set in on this mob. And they realize what the crowd has been saying and the temple guard has made, this is God. And they didn't want to be in his presence anymore. The old Presbyterian minister James Montgomery Boyce put it so beautifully. Obviously, there was something in the gaze of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or in the tone of his voice. Or simply in the power of his presence that got through to these men, unrepentant as they were. And it left them powerless. You think of the efforts they had gone through to hatch this plan. Think of the plotting, yet they were destroyed in a moment when they were confronted by the God who masters circumstances. You see, this story gives us four beautiful things to see in Jesus. Do you see his humility, his trinity, his authority, and his gospel? But to see these qualities even further, let's go back to the sinner. Because Jesus only asks one question in this whole illustration of the gospel. Everybody's left except a, a star-struck crowd who can't move. They're paralyzed by this thing. I don't know if you've ever been there where you've seen something you're just paralyzed. You know maybe you should look away. You know maybe you shouldn't listen, but you can't help yourself. And Jesus says, woman, notice that. He doesn't call her by her name. He addresses her as one of his creation. Where
1: are they? Has no one condemned you? Why? Why would he say this? Because his actions speak of
0: his godness, his authority. He's just declared he's better and over Moses. His holiness and his being the judge of sin. Yet in this question, I want you to see that Jesus is also helping this dear lady. He's telling her, Look, this I am the one you should be concerned about. I'm the one you should look to for clarity on life. I'm the one who has authority over you. And I'm the one who set the standards for life. And in doing all of this, Jesus also shows this dear sinner I am the one who can judge sin, but I am the one who will pay for it. Hence why he says, neither do I condemn you. going from now on sin. And how does he do it? How does he satisfy the holiness of God and yet be the friend of sinners? In two words, the cross. It's where mercy and justice collide. It's where Jesus would die for the sins of people such as this woman. You see, Jesus didn't come into the world... To take this woman's adulterous shame for nothing. He put away her sin and said, neither do I condemn you. And he speaks forgiveness to us, not because we are not guilty. And certainly not because God winks at our sin. Jesus is not only unconcerned with justice, far from it. But in the work of his life and death, he he says, go and sin no more. Listen to me, folks. We are forgiven in order that we might become holy. Don't reverse it. Jesus does not say, Leave your life of sin, and then I will think about forgiving you. Were that the case, he might as well just condemn you. No, he forgives us on the basis of his saving work. Listen to Paul in Titus 3. He saved us, notice, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Therefore, it's Jesus declares, you're not condemned, you will not be charged, he will will send away this accuser away by lifting up his nail-pierced hands. That's why Paul said, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Oh, that you would know what it is to be forgiven of God and go live like it today and this week. The scribes and the Pharisees wanted to trap Jesus. They wanted to entrap him. They wanted to expose that he is no Moses. <laughs> but the whole time, Jesus said, no, in fact, I'm better than Moses. In fact, you want to know why? I'm the new Adam. I'm not only better than Moses, I'm before him. And I'm over him. And he bends down and takes that posture of God where Moses couldn't even look at the glory of God passing by. and He had to be sheltered in the cleft of the rock. And when the back end of the glory, the Shekinah glory of God went by, it caused Moses to become a nightlight and he glowed in the dark for weeks. This is what it means to come into the presence of God. (laughs) I love this. Let me just give you a glimpse of how amazing God is. All right? My friend over in the UK, Andrew Wilson, just listed off some of the ways that Jesus is new Jesus is the new Adam who passed the garden test by submitting to the will of the Father. And he crushed the snake and gave life to the dead rather than death to the living. Jesus is the new Eve. He's the ancestor of all new life through whom the promised rescue finally comes. Jesus is the new Abel whose blood announces that family feuds and murder and death are on the way out and that subsequent generations will be acquitted rather than condemned. Jesus is the new Enoch, who knows God and walks with him and is not subject to the power of the grave. Jesus is the new Noah. He finds favor in the eyes of the Lord and whom humans are rescued from the judgment they deserve. And Jesus is the new Abraham, who trusts God and leaves his homeland to start a new nation and ends up inheriting the world with his galaxy of descendants. Jesus is the new Isaac, the miraculous child offered as a sacrifice out of obedience to God and rescued from death when all seemed lost. Jesus is the new Jacob who saw heavens opened and received the promises. He wrestled with God and commissioned 12 guys to go bless the nations. Jesus is the Lion of Judah, praised by his brothers and victorious over his enemies, to whom the whole world brings tribute and obedience. And Jesus is the new Joseph, the beloved son who was sold for the price of a slave, abandoned and left for dead, but remained faithful and then gets lifted up to the right hand of God the Father. And that, my friends, is just him in the book of Genesis.
1: That's how amazing he is. So my question for us all this morning is this. Who are you in this story? Are you the searcher? Just part of the crowd? Checking it out, but not actually involved? Are you the skeptic?
0: cynical, Unattached? Uncommitted, only around if it seems
1: good for you. Or are you the sinner? That faceless, nameless woman. And
0: maybe here you're here this morning and you feel like her. Maybe you feel like I am faceless. And I am nameless. Maybe you're disgraced by your sin, or you're tired and weary of the rat race that is life and wearied by guilt and fearful of the holy
1: God, then look upon Jesus Christ and see your Savior. He died for you. And now
0: he says to all who will receive him in humble faith, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Martin Luther said, if you have tasted the law and sin." And if you know the ache of sin, then look here and see how sweet in comparison the grace of God is. The grace which is offered to us in the gospel. And seeing that grace, you will not want to sin anymore. You see, only the sinner gets saved. Why? Because you've got to own your sin you got to come to Jesus and then only then are you able to hear those sweet words of forgiveness and grace. Only then will you experience the transforming power of the gospel naked at the feet of Jesus. Only to be clothed by his righteousness. Remember the son who ran away from his father in Matthew that we call the prodigal son. You remember he ended up in a pig pen. Eating the scraps with the pigs. And he runs home to dad. And he says, I'll just be a servant in the house of my father. But the father sees him and runs to him. And don't forget this. We often overlook this. The father takes his coat and puts it on his boy. See, the father clothes his son. This boy thought, I'll just go and I'll be exposed before my dad. And the dad says, no, 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 no. My boy was lost, but now is found. I will clothe you with my righteousness. I'll put my stamp of approval on you. You remember when Adam and Eve sinned all the way back in the Garden of Eden? And they hid, and they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. And then God comes and he kills that lamb as previews of the death of his son, and he covers them with sheep's clothing.
1: But Christian, let me ask you something this morning. Do you ever think this woman was dragged before Jesus ever again?
0: Against her will? Fearful and afraid? I think this woman ran to Jesus every day after this one. Never afraid. Never ashamed. She could go to Jesus all the time. Because she knew then what 1 John 1.9 should mean to you and I. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You don't have to be afraid anymore. You don't have to be ashamed. You don't have to pretend. This is why John the Apostle would say in 1 John 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. God. Why? Because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation. That means the replacement, the price payer for our sins. So you know what, folks? I'm going to tell you right now. I, come, I view church as like Sinners Anonymous. I, I come and every, every week I want to come and go, hey, I, I, I'm Steve and it's been two seconds since I sinned.
1: And I'm not afraid. I struggle. But I've, I've been clothed by Jesus. He's looked at me and said, I don't condemn you. Christians, stop acting like you've got to somehow keep yourself." And just start being children of God. Could there be more amazing grace? Now this is amazing grace. Thus ends the lesson from God's word. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the power
0: of your word. Lord, I pray that you will be patient and long suffering with me and my Friends and family will be. I've been a little bit more emotional than I normally would be. And Father, sometimes Satan whispers in my ear. But Lord, I love you. And I know you love me and you love the people that are here. And if there are people here and they're searching home, may they move to the point where they just want to be open and exposed before God so they can know freedom. Lord, if perhaps there's even a skeptic here, would they be both warned and invited? Scribes and Pharisees went away unforgiven. But I believe the Holy Spirit of God is here this morning inviting people to respond to Jesus. And oh, that every one of us would know the posture of a sinner naked at the feet of Jesus only to be told that Jesus will pay for our sin. Help us to meet the Savior. An amazing grace. In Jesus' name and all God's people sin.